those who love God's salvation say, Great is the Lord. <laughs> What's wrong? Did I say it wrong? <laughs> now I'm going to be paranoid the whole time. All right. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke 19 is probably a passage you're familiar with. So don't let your familiarity with this passage keep you from hearing from God this morning. Luke 19, 1 through 10, reads this way. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. In verse 10, and this is going to be the easy thing for me today, I don't have to conjure up application for you. This is the application of this. In verse 10 it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we pray. Lord, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to your word, Lord. Help us to see the wonderful things that you have for us here. Lord, let not familiarity cloud us from seeing what you have for us here in Luke 19. And so, God, we give you our minds, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives, and we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, would you guide us this morning. Not for my glory, not for these people to glory, but for your glory, for your fame to spread throughout all the earth. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you were to look back over the years of your life, would you be able to point to specific days that were monumental? Days that you will never forget. Well, there was a lot of days that come to my mind when I think about that question. One of the things that comes to my mind right away and I'm sure many things are coming to your mind even now, thinking about that question. One of the things that comes to my mind right away is my own conversion. One of the things that comes to my mind is where God, by His grace, saved me. Where He turned my world upside down. I remember it very clearly. In fact, the lady, my grandmother, who is here with us this morning, I was at her house. 
when God turned my world upside down. She had no clue what was going on other than when I came out bawling my eyes out and saying, God has forgiven me. I remember my wedding day. It's going to be hard not to cry. Man, I've rehearsed this all week and I can't still do it. My wedding day. I remember being so nervous in front of all these people. And then Jamie, for some reason, wasn't coming down the aisle when it was time to come down the aisle. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, oh, she's left me at the altar. And she finally came. Oh. And she was nervous too. I remember when Jamie was pregnant with Chloe. I remember going for our first ultrasound and seeing her face. I remember that. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. And the desire in me to see her in person. I loved her before she was ever born. And I'll never forget that image of her beautiful little face. Shifting gears, I'll never forget September 1st, 2001. I'll never forget it. I remember exactly where I was at. I remember what I was doing. I was eating a bowl of cereal, having just got off third shift at UPS, getting ready to go to class at Boys College at Southern Seminary, and watching that second plane fly into a building. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the feeling that came over me that day. What's going on? What's happening? There's many other days that we could point to. But the point of the matter is, there are days in our lives that are monumental. There's days in our lives as we reflect over them that we won't ever forget as long as we live. And as we turn to Luke 19, 1-10, we get a glimpse into a day that was monumental for a particular person and the crowd that witnessed it. I mean, this is such an interesting section because what Luke does in Luke 19 is he gives us a glimpse of the, the kind of finality of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you look down to verse 28, the very next thing that we go into is Jesus moving into Jerusalem, and he's heading where? Where's he going? He's going to the cross. I mean, we're talking about the last few weeks of Jesus' life, and here's what Luke wants to leave us with. Here's what Luke wants us to remember about Jesus. As he writes to his audience, and as we have it today, this is the final picture he wants to give to them about Jesus. And it's interesting because it doesn't have anything to do with healings. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus raising the dead. It doesn't have anything to do with various other things like feeding 5,000 has nothing to do with that. The picture that, that Luke wants us to have as he finishes out his letter, his gospel, he wants us to understand that this Jesus, he's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who changes the direction in someone's life. He's the one who causes us to be born again. He wants us to see that. 
He wants us to have that picture. And it was a monumental moment for a particular person, Zacchaeus. And it was monumental for those who were witnessing it of what the Lord did that day for Zacchaeus. It was, a day, it was a day that Zacchaeus wouldn't forget. It was a day that those who witnessed it would always remember. And isn't it interesting that even some 2,000 years removed from there, we still remember it? I'm sure when we mention the very thing of Zacchaeus' name, there's probably something that came to your mind right away. I joked with Jeff. I said, would you please lead us in that song before I get up to preach this morning? You remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. You remember this story, right? We all know this story. We remember it. We remember what happened to him that day where the Lord changed the direction, the course of his life. So there are four things this morning that I want us to look at as we work through this passage this morning. There are four things that, are, that Luke makes very obvious to us in the story. The first thing that he makes very obvious to us this morning is that we are lost and we need to be found. That we are sinners and we need to be what? We need to be forgiven. Come on, folks. Help me out this morning. So we're lost. We need to be found. We're sinners and we need to be forgiven. This is made very clear in this story. And it's what Luke wants his audience to remember, what he wants them to see the last few days of Jesus' ministry. His last few days of his earthly ministry. If you look at verse 7, it's interesting how he makes this known in the story. There's a couple of ways in which Luke makes it known to us about this whole principle. We're lost and need to be found. We're sinners and need to be forgiven. The very first one's found in verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, and when they saw it, when they saw what? When they saw that Jesus was going home with a sinner, notice what they did. They all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. <laughs> wouldn't that be what, wouldn't you love to have that be what everyone thinks of you? As the crowds gathered around watching this transpire, their very thoughts of Zacchaeus, they're grumbling and they're saying, he is a sinner. What is Jesus doing? What is he doing? And so his peers, those who are around him, they recognize him this way. He was a sinner. Why did they say that? Why did they label him this way? Luke tells us about Zacchaeus' occupation. He wasn't the most upstanding individual in society. Luke tells us that he was, in verse 2, a chief tax collector, and he was what? He was rich. He tells us Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Not only, he's not just any tax collector. Luke gives us the details. He's the chief tax collector. He's the only one that's called the chief tax collector in the Gospels. As we look at where he was stationed in Jericho, it really was, just kind of as historians have pointed out, a trading post. It was a one main stop on the way to Jerusalem to the east, and the headquarters of the Roman IRS in Judea was in Jericho. And so he was over the tax collectors there. 
There's a lot of tax collectors who probably worked there, and Zacchaeus was chief of them. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means that he not only collected taxes, but he had people under him who was doing it too. The problem with him was he was skimming off the top. He was getting rich. He was getting wealthy off the taxes of the people. One scholar has noted that tax collectors weren't even considered trustworthy enough to be a judge in society. They weren't even able to be witnesses in the court of law because they were never considered to be trustworthy individuals. So tax collectors in the first century were not considered upstanding citizens. Nor were they poster children for moral integrity. They weren't. Luke actually gives us a lot of details about tax collectors in his gospel. It's kind of interesting. In Luke chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that tax collectors came to be baptized. In Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32, we're told of the conversion of Levi, Matthew, who is, it's interesting in the story, it says, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and guess what Matthew does? He follows Christ. He goes after him. He leaves everything and goes to Christ. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, you probably remember this story. It's the whole story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the temple and to pray. You remember what the Pharisee did in the, as he's praying Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. You remember that? I'm not like him. And what is the tax collector doing? He's beating his chest. He won't even look up to the sky. Asking God to have mercy on him. Because why? He's a great sinner. He needs mercy. So as we enter back into this narrative before us, not only does Luke give an account of what his peers thought of him, but we're told out of Zacchaeus' own mouth his situation. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, all... The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. He acknowledged that he had defrauded people. He had taken things that should not have been taken. He acted as a thief in his profession. He was enriched by his immoral deeds and his ungodly dealings in business. He acknowledges that. And those who knew Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus himself made it very, very clear he was a sinner. If we were to contrast this story with Luke 18, 18-30, with a rich, rich young ruler, it's actually a very interesting story in comparison to this one. In this story, we have Jesus, we have a different person, the rich young ruler, a different response, and a different outcome. You remember the story, it's when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember this? Do you remember Jesus' response to him? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You remember that? Do you remember his response to that? The rich young ruler's response was, but when he heard these things, 
he became very sad because he was very rich. So Luke's honing in on the fact that the rich young ruler really loved his money. He really loved his wealth, and he couldn't let it go. He couldn't let go of it. I'm sure if you would have asked the rich young ruler about it, uh, peers, his peers about him, I'm sure they all would have been, man, he's an upstanding guy. He tries to obey all God's law. He's living a right life. I mean, we know what he thought of himself. I've done everything. But that was not true of him, was it? The rich young ruler definitely thought well of himself. But notice what Jesus says in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so this notably would make his disciples then say, how in the world can anybody be saved then? And Jesus says to them, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. And we enter back into this narrative in Luke 19, and what do we see here? We see Luke holding up Zacchaeus on display as what is impossible with men is possible with God. This filthy scoundrel, this guy who had all these ungodly business dealings, this one who was taking and skimming off the top of all the taxes so he could become rich, guess what Luke does? He holds him up and says, this is possible. This is possible for heart change. This is possible for conversion. And it tells us today, folks, that there should be no one in our lives that we say, oh, I don't have any hope for them. There's no hope for them. There's no chance for them. They've done this and that, and they've got themselves into this, and we say there's no hope. That's not true. It's a lie. It's a lie. Remember the last picture Luke wants us to have of our Savior is he is seeking to save that which is lost, is possible with God. So this man who is a sinner and who, humanly speaking, had no hope, we see he was lost, he needed to be found, he was a sinner, he needed to be forgiven, and Luke makes it very clear. This is why it was a day to be remembered. Because no one was expecting this. No one was expecting this. Look at the crowd. They're grumbling. I mean, Jesus went home with this guy? Does he know what he's doing? In fact, Zacchaeus was probably the least likely candidate for this salvation. But here's the deal. We may not have Zacchaeus' sins, but we're all like him when we enter into this world, aren't we? When we enter into this world, we enter into this world lost. We enter into this world hopeless. We enter into this world as sinners. Sinners who need to be forgiven. 
We enter into this world as lost. We need someone to find us. Do we not? It doesn't matter if your sins are those of Zacchaeus or what sins they are. You need to be forgiven. Amen? We've lost that in our culture, haven't we? We've lost the reality that there really are people who are lost. Yet in Luke's Gospel, we have the lost coin, the lost sheep, Zacchaeus. A lot of mention of lostness. It's not just that they're unbelievers, they're lost. They're hopeless without Christ. And we need to remember and be reminded this morning that there are sinners who have been forgiven. There are those who are lost that have been found. And there are sinners who need to be forgiven, and there are those who are lost and need to be found. Those are the only two groups. There's no one that can say they're not a sinner. No one here. Can any of you? No one can say you're not a sinner. But these two categories, we all fit into one or the other. That we're lost and we've been found that we are a sinner and we've been forgiven. We're lost and need to be found. And we're a sinner and we need to be forgiven. Those are the two categories. Those are the two categories. And since we are lost and we need to be found, since we are sinners and we need to be forgiven, we see the second point in verse 10. We see the necessity of being sought after. We see the necessity of being sought after in verse 10. Listen to what Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was His purpose. Do you understand that? Coming into this earth, God incarnate, His purpose was to seek and to save that which is lost. There's great hope in these words. In Charles Spurgeon's biography that W.Y. Fullerton did of him, he quotes Spurgeon of his life previous to conversion. He says, I must confess, he says, Thou never, I never would have been saved if, if, it could have helped, if I could have helped it. As long as ever I could, I rebelled and revolted and struggled against God. When He would have me pray, I would not pray. And when He would have me listen to the sound of ministry, I would not. And when I heard and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defiled Him and melted my soul. But long before I began with Christ, listen to His words, He began with me. Long before I began with Christ, He began with me. And He goes on to quote a poem that was famously written during His time. It was called The Hound of Heaven. The hound of heaven, which is a metaphor of God's relentless pursuit of us. His relentless pursuit of us is a metaphor that's very fitting for this story. In Luke 19, because what are we told in verse 10? That He is coming to seek and to save that which lost. He is the hound of heaven that's coming after those who are lost. Those who need forgiveness of their sins. And so as we look at our story, we see Jesus on the pursuit. We're told that He entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And as Jesus is passing through, we're told that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. He wants to see him. Why does he want to see him? We really don't know. We really don't know. Many speculations have been presented. Some have presented maybe he was tired of all his wealth. He was worn out with his wealth. He was discontent with his wealth. And he wanted to see Jesus. Maybe something Jesus could do for him. Perhaps he was one that just had great respect for Jesus. He had heard about him and knew he was coming through. And so he wanted to see him as he passes through. Another has suggested that maybe he was just curious. That maybe he's heard all this fuss about Jesus and all the things that he had done. And he wanted to see Jesus as he comes through. Some have even said that possibly that because he was a chief tax collector that he was aware of Matthew's conversion and knew of it and wanted to see this Jesus. Whatever it was, this little man was wanting to see him. But the truth of the story is Jesus wanted to see him. Jesus wanted to see him. And when he finds him, he calls him. This is the whole interesting thing of the story. When he finds Zacchaeus in the tree, what does he do? He calls him by name. He calls him by name and tells him to come down from the tree. And it shows us that we're not looking for Jesus. He's looking for us. And He is the one who's calling out our names to Him. To come to Him. It it reminds me of John 10 where the sheep hear His voice and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. This is what's going on in the story. Zacchaeus hears his name. He hears the great shepherd. And he comes to the shepherd. And what does Jesus do for him? He leads him out. He leads him out. And so the real seeker in this story is not Zacchaeus. It's Jesus. He's the one who is seeking Zacchaeus. And he's the one who is underneath the whole thing of Zacchaeus wanting to see him. And His providence setting it all up. And Jesus addresses him and tells him to come down from the tree. Which leads us to our third point. When Jesus finds you, He changes you. When when Jesus finds you, He changes you. Look at what Zacchaeus' response is. In verse 6, it says, So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. He heard His name. And He came with not just obedience, but joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. He received Him joyfully. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, said this. He says, Oh, the joy of the heart that receives Christ when Christ Himself does really come to the soul. Jesus really came to the soul of Zacchaeus. And when you encounter Jesus, there's a true encounter with Him, He changes you. He doesn't leave you the same. Look at what Luke goes on to tell us in verse 8 and 9. It says, And then Zacchaeus stood up and told them, told the Lord, he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since He is a son of Abraham. 
So what is Zacchaeus doing? What is he doing in verse 8? In verse 9, he's declaring that what once held control of his life no longer does. What once controlled his life, what once was navigating his life no longer does. The idolatry of money that once held Zacchaeus in bondage no longer had a grip on him. No longer had a grip on him. And, and the idolatry of money that, that he thought was so great, it was gone. And so when your heart is giving over to Jesus, it's amazing what falls off of your hands when it has fallen out of your heart. This one pursuit that he had no longer mattered. It no, matter, it no longer mattered. How do we know? How do we know that's true? That's the last point. When we're found and we're forgiven, our hearts are changed. It's evident. It's evident that it happens. Because he had repented, because he turned away from his sins and turned in the direction of Christ. He gave back that which he had unlawfully defrauded. And he restored fourfold. And he's pulling it out of Exodus 22. The four sheep rule. If you steal one sheep, you give back four. That's the rule. He's applying that rule. He has stolen gobs of money and now he's given it back fourfold. And that shows a heart that's been converted. A heart that's been changed. This is what happens at conversion. We're made new. We're made new. Behold, all things become new. We're given new desires. We're given a new way of life. The trajectory of our lives looks different. It doesn't look the same anymore. And Luke is trying to show us that the possessions that once held Zacchaeus captive no longer do. Jesus is now his treasure. Jesus is now his delight. His delight. We see in this text that all of us are called to worship and love God. All of us are called to treasure Him. All of us are called to delight in Him. All of us, the trajectory of our lives should be the glory of God. Those who have met Jesus, those who have encountered Him, those who have been changed by Him, there should be evidence of change. And so, unbeliever, maybe you're here this morning and you think, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for you. You feel hopeless. You feel like there's nowhere I can turn to see light. There is hope. There's hope in Christ. He is that hound of heaven that comes seeking to save. Hear me. You who are lost. You who are lost. You who are a sinner. You who needs forgiveness. His purpose, His ministry, was to seek and to save that which is lost. There's hope. There's great hope. So look to Him. Call out to Him in faith, repenting of your sins. As John 14.6 says, 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. The life. No one comes to the Father unless through Him. Believer, how do we respond to this? What do we do with Luke 19, 1-10? Here's what I think we should do. Here's how I think we should respond. We should actively be seeking out opportunities with the lost. We should be actively seeking out opportunities with the lost. Whether that is your immediate family, your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, wherever it is, you should be seeking out opportunities with the lost. As Jesus said, I'm seeking to save that which is lost. You know what? The Father sent Jesus and Jesus sends thank you us. He sends us out into the world. We are His ambassadors. We are His instruments of peace. We are His evangelists. We are those who would share this hope, this Gospel. But oh, how we often neglect it. Oh, how often we neglect this duty. And I think we neglect it a lot of times because we just, we're not convinced that people really are lost. I think that's a great issue in the church today. Especially in our culture. We're just not convinced people really are lost. That God really is going to pour out His wrath. That God really is going to bring all this to an end one day and we will stand before Him in judgment. We just don't believe it. We're not convinced though. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because we're not doing this. We're not seeking out opportunities with the lost. We neglect this duty because it's not politically correct in our culture. It's not politically correct to say someone's lost. Someone will die and go to hell if they die in unbelief. It's not politically correct. We neglect it because we think it is left to those who are professionally trained to do it. We think only those who have got some kind of formal training, they're the ones that need to be doing this. No. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is pretty clear. We all need to be doing it. We all need to be out teaching. We all need to be out seeking opportunities with the lost. And here's the other thing I want to say to you, believer, as we end. Not only do we seek out opportunities, but we're to bring Christ to them. We're to bring Christ to them. And Gerhardus Voss, in a sermon he preached on this text, in Princeton Seminary Chapel, he said this, he said it this way, he says, we are to bring Christ to men and men to Christ. He says, we are to bring Christ to men and men to Christ. How do we do that? How do we do that? We do it by verbally communicating the Gospel. That's how we do it. We do that by verbally communicating the Gospel. Romans 10, 17 is very clear. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Do you understand when we're sharing the Word that Christ is behind the Word that's being shared? We're bringing Him to the people. 
And as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent you into the world. His disciples, his followers, those who love him, those who treasure him, were sent. We're sent ones. We're ambassadors. We're light and dark. We're instruments of his peace. And so tonight, as we prayer walk, as we seek to love out our neighbors, to take the gospel to our neighbors, don't miss this opportunity. Don't neglect the opportunity. Opportunity to take Christ to men. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, your word is powerful. Your word, Lord, is a light, a lamp unto our feet. And so, God, we just pray. God, I'm sure there's a flood of people that come into our minds when we think about seeking opportunities with the lost. I'm sure family members come to mind. I'm sure co-workers come to mind. I'm sure kids at school come to mind. Lord, I pray, would you instill within us a desire to be obedient to you? That we would seek opportunities to take the gospel to our neighbors, to our state, to our nation, and to the world. God, may we not have to beg people to go on a mission trip. God, may we be zealous to do it. And Father, today I pray for those who are here that don't know you. I pray, Lord, through this word of Luke 19, God, you would have spoken into their heart. I pray that your spirit would move in their lives and change them. Just like you did Zacchaeus. Just like you did me. Just like you've done for countless others who are in this building. Turn the world upside down for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.